Hello, welcome to the Anglo-Boer War podcast, episode one, with me, your host, Des Latham. The Anglo-Boer War began in 1899 and ended in 1902. It was the culmination of more than 250 years of Boer expansion into Africa, where they came into conflict with black Africans, as well as a century of conflict with the British Empire. It was a war that the British expected to wrap up in months or maybe a few weeks, but ended up costing tens of thousands of lives and lasted three years. It started with lofty ideals and ended with the British throwing Boer women and children into concentration camps where they died in their thousands. Britain in the 1890s was characterized by prosperity, technological developments and social stability. Its shipping was moving from wood to metal. There was refrigerated foods in transit for the first time. Ocean liners were beginning to ply the seas. The world's first submarines had submerged successfully for over six hours. Trains were moving at over 70 miles per hour between London and Aberdeen in Scotland. The motor car had been released from the Red Flag Act. And proper pneumatic tyres were to be found on bicycles. Trams were running on electric power and balloon flights were common pastime. In this episode, we outline the causes of the war and the difference between the two sides before the conflict began. We also take a closer look at the role that the discovery of gold played in driving the conflict, and some background to the Boers, who were constantly seeking independence in a world closing in on them. It was the Victorian era, and London appeared to rule the world in an empire upon which the sun never set. 14,000 kilometers away in South Africa, a city had developed which to this day remains unique, Johannesburg. The city of gold, founded after the 1886 discovery of the richest veins of gold-bearing ore on the planet. It quickly became clear that the ore was not high quality, but it was incredibly consistent and uniform. Some of the reefs stretched for 200 kilometers. It also plunged downward more deeply than any other gold reef in the world. A decade later, in 1898, Johannesburg was producing 15 million pounds worth of the yellow metal a year and had overtaken Russia, Australia and the USA in production. As the gold miners rushed in, a classic antagonism built up. The Boers, who had trekked north from the Cape in the south starting in the 1830s, were people of the book and had faith in their own mastery in the wilderness. They were puritanical and appalled at the Eitlander or outsider rabble that arrived with cartloads of whiskey, women and wine. Worse, the arrivals were predominantly British, who'd introduced the abolitionist laws against slavery in the Cape and the taxes that prompted the Great Trek when the Afrikaners, as they became known later, left northwards 70 years before. The British also began to hire black workers, which threatened what the Boers saw as their fragile state with its farming culture and isolated lifestyle. The Great Trek led to the creation of two main states run by the Boers in the north of South Africa, the Orange Free State and Transvaal. They had initially controlled Natal on the eastern seaboard, but Britain annexed the region in 1843. That really split South Africa in two. Boers speaking Dutch and a derivative of Dutch called Afrikaans in the north, English speaking British supporters in the south, with the Cape Afrikaners also in the south, in between politically speaking. The two republics, Transvaal and the Free State, were led by Wim Paul Kruger, or Uncle Paul Kruger, and Andries Steyn, respectively. Johannesburg lay in the Transvaal Republic. Uncle Paul, Wim Paul we'll call him from here on, was president. He'd been ten when his parents left during the Great Trek, and he had fought many battles with blacks and whites throughout the decades. Now he lived in Pretoria, the Transvaal capital. 
just to the north of Johannesburg. He was a Calvinist and had no formal schooling, but great political acumen and was sometimes seen as blindly bigoted. But he was a man of his time, and it was in the midst of Victorian and Boer expansion that this story unfolds. We'll need to understand more about Johannesburg, because it's really here that the Anglo-Boer War started, and from where the engine of London and South African capital drove inexorably towards conflict. Named Johannesburg after Johannes's farm, Johannes is a form of John, Johannesburg means Johnstown or Johannestown or Johannesburg. It was the center of a gold rush of people and capital which immediately infused the new town with class and race antagonism. Their arrivals, as we said, were largely British, many with mining experience in the home country, and they brought the late Victorian ethos of drunken inner-city, poor, white, semi-literate class into a region dominated by sedate godliness with rigid moors. The Boers were appalled. Kruger's government ensured through tax collection and strict enforcement of moral codes that the Eightlanders, the outsiders, were aware that they were unwelcome, and particularly galling to these Eightlanders was that they were banned from voting. The capitalists wanted more cheap black labor, and colonies such as Natal expanded and introduced a tax regime on black subjects who were forced in to seek work to pay the tax. This caused many, many hundreds and thousands to move into Johannesburg. The Boers then saw a flood of blacks entering their region. A tension grew in which the politically astute Cecil John Rhodes and like-minded men in the Home Office revelled. They wanted the British government to intervene. While Rhodes was ambivalent about direct military conflicts at first, others were more sanguine. The black townships sprang up on the outskirts of Johannesburg city centre, where many still are. And there were at least 88,000 black workers in Johannesburg by 1898, in terrible conditions. The townships were full of typhoid pneumonia and sexually transmitted diseases. Mixed race or coloured areas of people who at that time were referred to as Cape Coloureds were a little better off, hired as tram car drivers, carpenters and craftsmen. Indians from Natal ran many shops in the area, and as documents show, poor whites were dependent on these traders for their daily food. Curiously, these symbiotic relationships continue to this day in parts of Johannesburg. Company control was more evenly distributed in Johannesburg than in Kimberley, where Rhodes ruled. The largest company was Rand Mines, which produced around one-third of gold output, while Rhodes's company, Consolidated Goldfields, managed only around a tenth. It was the nature of the reef's deep-level mines that created the biggest challenge for financiers, the cost. The deeper they went, the more sensitive they were to the disproportionate time it took to bring the ore to the surface. They needed much more dynamite, more labour, both of which were expensive and controlled by Kruger's government through tax and republic licences, which were both corrupt and onerous, and furthermore, the dynamite really was a monopoly. So the costs were saved by slashing black miners' pay. The dangerous deep-level mining was hated by black men who travelled from around southern Africa to work in the deep mines and most tried to avoid it by seeking jobs on the surface. While black Africans were denied the boat, so too, as we've seen, were the white Aitlanders or English speakers and this was to drive the whole region to war. Well, the next attempt at forcing Boer hands was in 1896 when Leander Starr Jameson, who was backed by arch-colonist Cecil John Rhodes, launched an armed incursion into the gold-bearing areas of Johannesburg but failed. Rhodes thought that uh, there would be a political end to the crisis and no real war, that there would be an uprising and that the British would intervene and the British would take over and he would carry on making his money. But it didn't quite work out that way. 
Jameson thought he could stimulate an uprising against the Kruger government by the Eightlanders and rode into the Transvaal with a force of 400 men armed with uh, semi-automatic Maxim guns, Lee Enfields and a host of other weapons, but was arrested in Krugersdorp, west of Johannesburg, after a short, sharp firefight called the Battle of Duinfontein. Jamison was lucky not to be executed, saved by the fact that Kruger's government didn't want him to be turned into a martyr, although 65 members of his small army were shot dead in the firefight. And in an ominous sign of future battles in South Africa, not one Boer was killed or injured in turn. Jamison was jailed instead, along with over 100 Jamison raiders. Rhodes supported the attempt at overthrowing the Transvaal Republic, but he later denied it. What complicated the Boer cause, however, was a cable sent by Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany to Kruger, uh, congratulating him on beating the Jameson Raiders, which sealed in the minds of the British the surrogacy of the Boer nation and its links to German imperialism. And as Jan Smuts later said, the Jameson Raid was the real declaration of war in the great Anglo-Boer conflict, and that is so in spite of the four years' truce that followed. He says, the aggressors consolidated their alliance, the defenders, on the other hand, silently and grimly prepared for the inevitable. So now let's look at Rhodes. We need to understand just what insidious force he wielded in South African society. And during the course of these podcasts, you'll see his actions in Kimberley, just how far he went uh, running uh, the show in that city, and uh, how hated he was by his own people at some stage. He was a colonial, known as a jingo, who believed British rule should extend from Cape to Cairo across Africa in his own form of messianism. His total control over the Kimberley diamond mines and his domineering malicious company boy mentality did actually help push South Africa to war at the end of the century, but he was not alone, as we'll see. Many other loud hailers of the era were also able at that time to drive sentiment. One was the poet and author Ryder Haggard, whose purple prose inspired young boys to enter the military and fight for Queen Victoria and country and die. Future Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain would call Rhodes a blunderer, who would cause the Cape Afrikaners to rise up, and a blackmailer, who had threatened to reveal the secret inner workings of the British government by publishing confidential telegrams. So we can see how Rhodes was not entirely liked by the British. Rhodes remains divisive to this day, with his statue removed from the University of Cape Town after student protests in 2015. While Rhodes wanted confrontation and change, Chamberlain initially believed in a union of some sort of the republics, and had warned of a lasting bitterness should Britain attack. As historian Thomas Packenham describes, the real message to the warmongers from Chamberlain was, uh, well, keep it up, just don't implicate the British government directly in your conspiracy against Kruger. British policy, uh, imperial policy in particular, was uh, riven by politics in the home country, with the Liberals constantly assailing the Conservatives pretty much as they do now. The Home Office had sent Sir Alfred Milner, who we meet now, and is going to be a major character throughout the story. Anyway, it sent Sir Alfred Milner in 1897 to be Governor General of the Cape, and who, like Rhodes, harboured a deep-seated dislike of the Boers. Unlike Rhodes, he also had a deep-seated dislike of Africa and Southern Africa in particular. When he arrived in Cape Town in 1897, he called the city a beastly hole. Rhodes, on the other hand, wanted to be buried in Africa, and eventually he was. Milner described Southern Africa as the little corner in the global chessboard and convinced Liberal Party members that he was not a sanguine leader out for blood, that violence could be averted. 
However, his published memoirs show the complete opposite and that he was lying to cover his real intention, which was to secretly support a mine investor called Byte and what were known as the Gold Bugs, or businessmen in Johannesburg, who tried or wanted a war. He needed to somehow convince the public in Britain about their grievances against the Kruger government and therefore to force London's hand. Let's have a look at Milner. He was a shy, austere, melancholy man with a long, thin face and downcast grey-brown eyes and apparently looked older than his 44 years. The photographs certainly show that. Nothing surprised people more upon meeting him than his appearance. He, as Peckenham describes, had a whiff of the British Museum about him, but he was academically brilliant and deeply ambitious. Yet he would push South Africa into a military catastrophe within two years, aided and abetted by the Eightlanders in this true tale. Milner felt even less for the Boers and wanted to stimulate the war in order to destroy their governments. Milner's diary shows how close he was to Rhodes and how both conspired to ensure London intervened. Ironically, one of the men in Britain who was not convinced and appeared to vacillate was Chamberlain, the colonial secretary, as we've seen. Chamberlain's later action was partly influenced by his role in this war and led him to go down in history as one of the men who misread a situation of crisis and may have greatly enhanced Hitler's confidence. The chieftain, the leader of the Boers, was the four-times Transvaal President Paul Kruger, Wim Paul. During the upcoming war, we'll see how, when under pressure, he had only one response, to haul out his battered leather-covered Bible and quote directly from it to deliver final decisions or motivations. The felt had made him, but it would also lead to defects in his leadership. He believed his uh, people had a covenant with God, and in many ways his Christian determinism blinded him to global realities. Some of the incidents we'll cover in Kimberley, Ladysmith and Mafeking, the three main towns held under siege, will shock you with the violence and malevolence of the colonial mentality. But the story has many parts, and the heroics by individuals are at times uplifting and at other times stupefying. This podcast needs to move more rapidly towards the escalation of tension. So 1898, on the eve of the war that shattered Victorian England's belief in the empire and which was a precursor to the First World War in the use of weapons and tactics, we need to take a close look at the next few months running towards war, which began in 1999. In effect, two small republics in Africa with a population that totaled less than Birmingham in England held one of the world's most powerful empires in history to ransom at precisely the point that it was at its zenith. The Free State and Transvaal had allies in places like Holland, Germany, the Prussian Empire, the USA, and even the Republic of Ireland. It was the story of an industrial state, with its steel-hulled ships and balloons, its underground railway electricity, the England of Charles Darwin's evolutionism against the Boer leadership, with Kruger wielding his Bible, quoting psalms and chapters to inspire his men against the wealth and power of the evil European nation. It was, in another way, science versus magic. We'll help dispel some myths too, but what is really fascinating is how the Anglo-Boer War was a precursor to modern combat. From the tactics that evolved to the style of sniping, the small guerrilla campaign far away in Africa set the scene for many battles, which in many ways are still being fought in Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq and Syria. It was also in the strategic use of the trench that the Anglo-Boer War predated the First World War, as well as with a host of other technologies. We'll spend an entire podcast at some point in the next year dedicated to the arms and technology used in this conflict. So, by the time Britain annexed the Transvaal in 1877, it was one of the many regions globally they challenged and tried to crush, but the republics were different. These were men who had lived their lives with a rifle in one hand, 
and were now armed with the latest Mauser bolt-action rifles. The German rifle was lightweight, easy to carry on a horse, and deadly accurate with practice. Furthermore, the ammunition was the terrifying dum-dum, or flathead round. We'll hear more about what this did to men in combat, ripping young British soldiers apart and causing horrendous injuries. This story resonated globally. Americans were pressurized by Boer emissaries to support a fellow territory facing London's imperialism, as the British had done in the Civil War and the War of Independence. German journalists, as well as German mercenaries, joined the war on the side of the Boers. Some reports from the German press castigated the British leadership as weak and muddle-headed. Their tactics were poor and their planning faulty. They were right. But it wasn't just Germans, Swedes, Irish, Dutch, all fought for the Transvaal, while Australians, New Zealanders and Indians for the British. It wasn't quite a world war, but the world was involved. Two of the most famous people of the 20th century cut their teeth in the Anglo-Boer War. Mahatma Gandhi was a stretcher-bearer near Ladysmith. Winston Churchill, a British peer and a reporter who was captured and escaped, only to return to reporting some of the biggest battles of the Boer War. A war reporter for almost three years on the ground. There's no doubt this experience helped shape a later leader who faced fascism in Europe. For South Africans, the Anglo-Boer War reinforced schisms between the English and what became known as Afrikaners, the descendants of the Dutch Boers who had arrived in the Cape in the 1600s. It led later to an uprising during the First World War by hardline Afrikaners, and in the Second World War turned Afrikaans nationalism into what became known as apartheid. It only takes a small spark to set off a conflagration, and the Anglo-Boer War is no different. As 1898 wound its way to the end of November, the Transvaal baked in the 30-degree heat just before Christmas. After only 15 years since Gold's discovery, Johannesburg was a city of 50,000 whites and 88,000 blacks living in townships and shacks around the city. Streets had been laid out with sober British names like Commissioner and Anderson Streets. The central business district was respectable. The granite and sandstone solid buildings which remain there to this day were lit by gaslight. It was and still is a raw city. And then, as now, the miners had a thirst for cheap labour. Who's ever heard of Tom Edgar? A large man who's shooting to death just before Christmas 1898 after a drunken party set off a chain of events that led inexorably to war. Born in Lancashire, he made his way to Johannesburg to seek his fortune. He was large, six foot six, and staggered home after work at Tarry's, a metalworking company in Harrison Street downtown. It was two days before Christmas. He was earning £26 a week, roughly four times what he'd earn in Lancashire doing the same job. He lived in a corrugated iron home with his wife close to the centre of town, and an altercation is reported to have occurred with another man called Mr. Foster. After knocking the smaller man down, a neighbour alerted the police, and they duly arrived. The Zarps, or Zad Afrikaans Republic Police, as they were called, will feature in the upcoming war, taking part in a number of battles, but tonight they were merely arresting a large, drunken eightlander called Tom Edgar. When the four policemen burst in, Edgar apparently attacked them with a metal-tipped stick and he was shot dead. This event, just before Christmas, featured a policeman called Mr. Jones who was a Boer. Another of the contradictions we'll see in this conflict, Jones is an English name. Jones was released by the magistrate on the lesser charge of manslaughter. This incensed the Eightlanders. Even Jan Smuts intervened and ordered Constable Jones re-arrested. But it was too late. 5,000 Eightlanders gathered in central Johannesburg on Christmas Eve with the straw hats of the artisans mingled with the bowler hats of the financiers and businessmen, all now demanding their rights as British citizens. 
Edgar symbolized their struggle, and like all struggles, once political differences are personalized around a single martyr, what would appear a martyr, it is far easier to mobilize the frustrated. Jones was eventually pardoned, angering the Eightlanders still further. In Cape Town, Milner rubbed his hands in glee, and Rhodes and Kimberley prepared for war. A petition signed by 21,000 Eightlanders was sent by train to Cape Town, where Milner waited, ready to prompt his home office in London to act. Kruger was aware of the danger and made a number of offers in what became known as the Great Deal. First, he would reduce taxes on the mining companies. Second, he would allow Eightlanders to vote, after five years' proven residency. But in turn, he demanded that the mining companies respect his dynamite monopoly. He also demanded the British refuse to back Cape Coloured and Indian claims on land and trading rights in his republic, and further demanded the British act against the English press of the day, who were actively involved in supporting the Eightlanders. Kruger wanted the British publicly to move against a group called the South African League. The latter had begun organising protests against the Transvaal Republic and used Edgar's death as their martyr of choice. The gold bugs or businessmen in Johannesburg were not in favour of the deal and mobilised government and Eightlander support against the idea. And leading the charge was a certain Percy Fitzpatrick, who became famous years later for writing Jock of the Bushveld, a seminal South African novel. Fitzpatrick was able to drum up support for the mine owners against the Boer plans, and in this he had a perfect partner in Milner, who waited for British public to create an outcry over the treatment of their brethren in South Africa so he could have his war. As we've seen, Milner was not alone. The younger Boers, too, had had enough of appeasing the English, and they wanted to repeat Majuba's crushing defeat on the British army. So, we've come to the end of this week's podcast. Next week, in episode two, we'll talk about the war preparations and the run-up to hostilities as negotiations bog down. Join me, Des Latham, for episode two of the Anglo-Boer War. You can also follow the discussion on Twitter, at Des Latham. Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mijn zaar is.